Welcome to the Tactical Breakdown, a podcast for law enforcement, military, and emergency response professionals. Stand by. Where we help you bridge the gap and talk training, tactics, and leadership with the best subject matter experts in the world. Checking in with you every week to deliver actionable intelligence and bring important resources and information to the men and women who serve. Here is your host, Adam Kanakin. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Tactical Breakdown Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Kanakin. This is part two of our interview with Dr. Mike Simpson. The first episode, if you haven't heard it already, was episode 10 of the Tactical Breakdown Podcast. You can find that at thebreakdown.ca forward slash 010. And that was all about training and tactics and some changes that have happened in the tactical medical community over the last couple of years. This episode of the podcast, the second half of our interview with Doc, is going to be all about equipment and the stuff you should or shouldn't be bringing into the field, stuff that's tactically sound, things that are proven, and stuff that you need to know. So I'm excited to bring you the second half of this interview. I hope you guys have enjoyed the first part, and I know you'll enjoy the second. Let's get right back into it with Dr. Mike Simpson. One of, the, one of the things I did want to talk to you about, I said before, was field care, field first aid. And I want to talk about IFACs for a second. Now, okay. you have kind of, you have, a, you have a pretty strong opinion on tourniquets and the <laughs> fact that, that for some reason, even though it's kind of the one tool that, like you said, can be applied under fire, it's the one thing that could save a life if you have some type of arterial bleed, yet... <clears throat> We have officers, we have emergency personnel that aren't carrying them on their person when they go out into the field. So I'll let, I'll let you kind of explain your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's, uh, when I hear, especially about law enforcement officers not carrying tourniquets, I found out my, ne- my next door neighbor is a, a sergeant at Austin PD. And oh, when I found out he wasn't carrying a tourniquet, I, I, I about needed one myself. Um, I immediately ran into my house and I got him three. It's one of those things, you know, I know people are probably listening to this and they're like, well, my department won't buy them for me. Spend the 30 bucks, man. You got, you got to buy one for yourself. And really, so everybody, in my opinion, needs to own three tourniquets, first of all. You need to own three tourniquets, one to train with that you mark training so you don't ever accidentally use it because it will become stressed over time with training with it. One that is quickly and readily available without getting, zipping, zipping into anything or reaching into anything. Uh, and you can reach with both hands. And then uh, a third that you carry preferably inside your IFAC or co-located with your IFAC. And your IFAC needs to be, it's an individual first aid kit. Okay. It's not called a VFAC. It's not a vehicular first aid kit. It doesn't do you a shit bit of good if it's in the vehicle. So uh, did, you, uh, did you see uh, season one of True Detective? I have not. I have not even. Yeah, so great. that's the only season I've seen. But there's a great running gunfight where they're basically doing a running gunfight through a housing project. And if you think about the fact that that's something that could really, they were undercover and there's a whole backstory to it, but uh, that's something that could really happen. I mean, you can find yourself, you know, how, how many times does this happen to a law enforcement officer, right? You get out at what the address is, I'm making air quotes, right? And it's like, it's the mall. And you're in the wrong entrance of the mall. And then you run five stores down. And then the subject 
runs and then you you're another five stories down and then he goes outside and now you're in the opposite parking lot and that's when his his buddy pulls out a gun and somebody gets shot now you got to run all the way back through the mall to your vehicle to get your first aid kit that's the wrong answer it should be with you you know your guns with you your tasers with you your radios with you your ifax with you i mean it's a no-brainer it's with you at all times um with a minimum of two tourniquets Another thing that gets me about tourniquets is I don't really understand that. And I've kind of been guilty of it myself uh, in, in the past. And that was because I was limited on what I had access to, i.e. I had uh, some tourniquets that I'd purchased and some tourniquets that were given to me. And so I ended up with kind of a mix and match in my kit. But really, I've gotten away from that. And I tell people, whatever don't do this. I carry one soft tea and I carry one cat and I carry one Sam XT. Just carry all the same ones. You know, it's unless, you know, the most of the ones I just described, you know, the, the, the reason I've heard in the past is, well, you know, in case it's for a pediatric patient, but really they're all going to go down to about the same size. And the fact of the matter is you don't get up as a law enforcement officer. And that's, I, that's, I guess who I'm, I'm speaking to directly. You don't get up every morning and have a wall of 50 different handguns and you pick one for that day, right? With a completely different optics than the, the one you were carrying the day before, right? And there's a reason for that because most departments, correct me if I'm wrong, Adam, most departments limit you in how many firearms you can carry on duty, how many sidearms you can carry on duty. Is that still correct? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm not, uh, not going to try to speak for every agency, uh, especially up here in Canada, but I know the agencies that, and the members that I know, all the officers here carry their, their one primary weapon system, which is usually going to be a Glock 21, mm-hmm. uh, and that's, it, what they, that's what they have on their person, and it's, it's department-issued, so every officer is issued the exact same weapon mm-hmm. system. Um, there's no variation, and then if if the agency is, is lucky enough, they'll also have their uh, assault rifle or AR-15 in their vehicle. Now, right. And that's, and that's pretty much it. Right. And, and you don't, you know, you don't want to be in that situation that, you know, the gun that you typically carry is your striker fire or whatever. And Hey, you decided to, you know, carry the, the, the sexy, whatever with the rail system that you got for your birthday on this day. And it's got a thumb safety and you totally forgot about it. And you don't realize it until you've done a, a dry squeeze three times in a row, right? It's, you know, you practice with one and you're highly proficient with one. And, and I'm not saying, you know, I, obviously there's people out there that carry more than one and that's fine. But I think when it comes to tourniquets, people always say, well, what's the best tourniquet? And I say, it's the one you practice with. You know, whether I don't, I don't practice with soft tees because I know that I don't really like them. Nothing against them. Um, I primarily have practiced with cats and with Sam XTs. And those are the two that I'm most comfortable with. and because the military had connexes and connexes and connexes full of cats, and that's what I'm most accustomed to, that's what I carry now. Is uh, that's when, when I leave the house, I have three cat tourniquets on me. And no matter which one, because I have an IFAC on each side of my bag that I carry, and then I carry one on the top handle. So no matter which way that I happen to reach out and my hand lands on that bag, I'm not surprised by whatever tourniquet ends up on my hand. It's a cat tourniquet because that's what I'm practicing with. And you really do need to practice. I mean, just like you practice with your firearm, just like you practice combatives on the mat, 
need to be practicing with that tourniquet. Yeah, that's exactly where my head went when you said that was when you when you do something like jujitsu, there's never going to be you're never going to find somebody who excels from every single position that likes attacking and defending from every single position. It just doesn't happen. Right. There's there's too many variations out there, right? So right. you like working from the guard or you like working from side control or whatever it is, but you get good and you get comfortable and you excel at those one or two things. And it's the same thing with Correct. Your, your equipment and your weapon systems. Right. Uh, it's kind of funny. It, it actually <laughs> brings up another thought. It drives me nuts when you, when you watch movies and you'll know this more than me. Cause I mean, you're a, an operator, but when you see these movies with like seal teams and all this stuff and every one of them has a different weapon system and none of them have the same ammunition. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. What happens if somebody runs out of ammo? Like, yeah, you know what I mean? It's, it's kind of the same. It's kind of the same thought process. It's like, why, Mm -hmm. why wouldn't everybody have And there's a reason why agencies and businesses and companies and everybody standardizes equipment and standardizes processes. Right. It's, It's not, and a lot of the times, yes, it's because it's a cost-saving measure and it's a budget and all that kind of stuff. But it also makes for more effective training and more effective use in the field under, you know, under fire. 100%. And if the movie Predator popped into mind when you said that because, you know, you have one or two guys with, uh, with nine millimeters. I think there's two guys carrying MP5s in that. And then uh, one guy with a, uh, an M16 203 combo one guy with an m16 shotgun combo another guy with a minigun and i don't remember what what the what the other guy was carrying but yeah they're all carrying different mix and match stuff and you can't for the purpose of battlefield recovery that's a terrible idea and when people think oh well that's yeah but that's that's a different type of scenario that's combat if you look at years ago, the two, there's, there's only ever really, the, the six to mine, there's only ever been one time in modern history, unless we're talking about Tommy guns in the age of prohibition, there's only been one time that there were guys with automatic weapons out shooting stuff up. And you remember it happened in California. Um, I believe that was back in the 90s. And this was before all police officers were carrying a carbine. This is when a shotgun was the biggest thing you could hope to, ha- hope to have in your cruiser. And they ended up not only running out of pistol ammo, they, uh, I believe they broke into a sporting goods store just to get more ammo. And then while they were there, they said, hey, let's grab some rifles. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, at that time, no law enforcement agency had gone up in, against anything even remotely like that. So, I mean, just, just the, the idea that, uh, that the, the bad guys had that kind of firepower and were able to put down that much suppression um, when again, all the police officers that were showing up had sidearms, shotguns, and that was it. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, from yeah. Now, that, now you brought that up, those are those guys were up armored, I think, right? So the because mm-hmm. the, the police officers at the time had revolvers and shotguns, and none of those rounds would be penetrating. Yep. The body. Nope. She <laughs> was. Um. So awesome. So with the tourniquets, so like you said, it doesn't matter which one you choose because anyone that you're going to purchase. There, if if it's out for purchase, chances are that it's gonna be there's. I don't really think there's any recommended, but they're approved for use, right? Meaning that they're yes, correct. So it's kind of whichever one floats your boat, but pick one, stick with it, train with it, so that you can use it. You know, 
in a dark alley when you've been pepper sprayed, you can't see shit and you're bleeding mm-hmm. out and you're able to apply it with one hand. So like those types, types of situations that I think with what you're getting at, right? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm getting at. You know, pick a, a, a TCCC approved tourniquet. And if you go to the TCCC website, there's a, a list of their approved tourniquets on there. So pick one of those, practice with it. Uh, what I tell people is uh, a minimum a minimum of one tourniquet application per week. I mean, that means you're doing 52 a year. That's, that's decent. I mean, that, that's going to get you, you know, decent proficiency, whether you're putting it on yourself or putting it in somebody else. And, you know, organizations, uh, law enforcement organizations out there, anytime you're doing any type of training, casualty play should be part of it, which means that people should be putting on tourniquets during that. Anytime you go to the range, if, especially if you're doing a stress shoot, putting on tourniquets should be part of your stress shoot shift briefing, you know, you're all, you're all sitting in the squad room at shift briefing, getting ready to roll out, you know, whoever's given that briefing should, you know, throw five or six tourniquets out into the room and start calling out injuries. You know, these, these are things that should be happening all the time. You know, it's, we're, everybody has to be up on all their, their bogus computer training, uh, being compliance with that. You know, why not take a minute and a half to train on a potentially life-saving skill? For the listeners on the show here, because a lot of them are up here in Canada. Now, the prevalence of firearms uh, used on the non-officer side isn't as high, obviously, as it is in the U.S. Sure. Uh, So, because you're a trauma doctor, what types of other injuries could a police officer possibly either be inflicted with themselves or respond to where Mm -hmm. a circuit would have to be used? Because... I know there's going to be people listening to this that are going to be like, we've in our detachment up in you know, Northern Ontario, there hasn't been a firearms incident in 20 years. So why, mm-hmm. why do I need to carry a tourniquet? So what, what other injuries are tourniquets applicable for? Oh God. Any, you know, stabbing, slashing injuries, especially if, if, if it's, we're talking about a domestic violence situation where somebody is, uh, you know, trying to defend themselves against getting stabbed, they're going to have some some extremity injuries, the upper extremities that could potentially lead to the point that they required a tourniquet. Um, had uh, not long ago, I saw a video of uh, a woman who cut her radial artery on a mason jar. So was was pulling some stuff out of the dishwasher, had a hot mason jar, and without thinking, decided to run it under cool water, and it shattered. And like simultaneously as that happened, she like, she like jumped or somebody pushed her. I don't, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it basically slid her radial artery. So, uh, you know, a snowmobile accident, you know, not, not to, uh, not to, uh, assume that somebody in Canada is going to see a snow, snow, snow machine, yeah, snow machine accident. <laughs> you know, Hey, the drunk who punches, you know, uh, punches his hand through his own windshield, uh, or punches through drywall and catches a drywall nail, you know, something of that nature. Uh, there's any number of things, you know, a, a bad, uh, somebody road biking on the side of the road and their chain pops off and they could, they could slice their thigh open on their sprocket. You know, there's any number of things you saw the, uh, there's, there's footage out there of a woman that was attacked in a domestic violence incident and was holding her baby. And uh, there's a, there's camp body cam footage of a police officer putting a, a cat tourniquet on that baby. So, you know, these are definitely things, you know, dogs, animal attacks of any kind, huge potential there to, to see something you might have to put a tourniquet on. Yeah. I knew you'd, I knew you'd have a, 
an awesome response to that question. Just, but I wanted to, I wanted everybody to understand that it's not just this. Tourniquets aren't just for people that use firearms, and uh, and I just I think you made that point. Um, with IFACs and with mm -hmm. officers carrying medical equipment on them, and now we're not just talking about officers, but you know it could be uh, emergency personnel or anything like that. There's there are standardized lists somewhat of what kind of goes into an IFAC. So turning mm -hmm. pressure bandages, um, hemostatic agents, if you have them, uh, mm -hmm. seals, decompression needles, um, airways like nasal oral airways sometimes. Mm -hmm. And then you kind of get into kind of now the more of the, the random things. So like uh, emergency blankets, splints, bandages, gloves, uh, Sharpies, duct tape, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. What? do you like if, if you were to make like how about this what what do you have in your ifac so i have uh in my ifac that i i carry on my person so i have i have two that i carry on a uh, uh, typically on a bag i don't uh i typically don't leave the house without i've got a little day pack that i go literally everywhere with and i remember when i first started doing that i was thinking that you know places were going to start telling me they couldn't have it. And then I quickly figured out that nobody cares. <laughs> it's, uh, so it's, it's pretty much with me everywhere I go. If not, I take, uh, I have two IFACs on it. I'll take one of the IFACs off and, and just put it in. I wear a lot of cargo pants. I'll, I'll put it in a cargo pocket. Um, my IFAC is pretty standard. So there's a, my, my secondary tourniquet is inside of it. Um, I have an Israeli bandage. Uh, the our emergency bandage that my company Persis Medical makes. In one of them, I have uh, a packet of, of quick clot gauze, so that's uh, impregnated hemostatic gauze. Um, I have two chest seals, I have a decompression needle, and I have a, a nasopharyngeal airway. Um, in my other one, I have what's called the T3 bandage, which is uh, has gauze with it, but it's non-impregnated gauze, and that's. Uh, Again, quick clot's one of those. Quick clot's great. It's it's pricey and it has a limited shelf life. So I don't I don't I don't feel that I need to carry two packets of quick clot, even though I do carry um, two separate IFACs. I take uh, bandage shears with me everywhere I go in case I need to you know cut somebody out of something or expose a wound a little bit better. Um, I don't typically just moving around. This was a conversation I had in one of the online forums not so long ago. This guy was talking about how he carried in his in his immediate care kit like uh that he would carry like on his chest he carried sam splints and i'm like why would you do that it's never uh and it, what ended up happening is that we were talking about the difference between uh mountain rescue versus tactical but he was he was trying to make it tactically applicable and it was not tactically applicable <laughs> it was it was high angle rescue applicable you're never going to be doing high angle rescue while under fire um, that would be a really bad idea um, Sam splints are something that can, something that can be in the vehicle. I do think, uh, if you're in law enforcement, you need to have, um, a hypothermia blanket in your vehicle and you need to have a real one. Not, there's, a, there's a couple of, there's a, there's really only a couple that are legitimate, should I say. And that's, uh, again, full disclosure, my company, uh, Persis Medical makes the blizzard blanket, which is, uh, and I'm, and I'm not just saying this, there's studies to prove it. It is the best one out there. Um, you know, the, the blizzard is, is considered the Cadillac. Um, in the same league with the blizzard is the hypothermia prevention management kit or the HPMK. Uh, although it's in the same league, but uh, I, I think we're better and, and studies would, would back me up on that. Um, 
don't carry one of these dollar fifty seven or even the nineteen dollar space blankets that you get at Walmart uh, because they really do nothing. They make you feel better about that you have something, but really you're carrying nothing. Um, and this is a factor. And this is you know uh, not just for your Canadian audience, but your for your audience in Florida and Texas as well. Um, it can be eighty degree weather outside and you lose half of your blood volume and lay on a linoleum floor in the mall where you got shot or stabbed, that's going to leach a lot of body heat. And uh, once, you've, once you've treated all the other life threats, you, you have to address hypothermia and somebody that needs to be addressed, it needs to be taken care of. And the added advantage, if you're using something like, uh, again, a shameless product plug, but if, if you're using lizard transport is it has a built-in polis litter right there with it so even if it's somebody who was you know uh, got assaulted in, in, a, in an airport terminal somewhere or in a gigantic in the king of prussia mall whatever that might be you've got something you can pick them up and carry them while addressing that hypothermia mm-hmm. from my understanding like i under i have the same type of things in my ifac and obviously i'm nowhere near as qualified and the only reason is the only reason I carry things like a, a decompression needle is because I've been shown how to use it. Even though mm-hmm. I've never done it, I feel that if I had to, you know, I would be comfortable doing it, right? Uh, second intercostal space down from the medial part of the clavicle, that kind of thing. So I know, I know the basics of it. And, it, and again, it'd only be used in like the last ditch, like, okay, this guy's not breathing and his, his lungs collapsed. Maybe this, maybe this will help. But for, Officers and people that are carrying these kits, what level of training would you recommend as a minimum before they start carrying things like decompression needles and airways and stuff like that? Yeah, I think if you're going to carry the full-blown IFAC, you need to have the full-blown training, which is the 16-hour the uh, TCCC course that is supposed to be done every other year if you, if you want to truly be current on it. Ultimately, um, if you're going to do something like a needle decompression, you need to check with basically whoever you're going to have to answer to for doing that. And uh, needle decompression is something that um, if, if I walk into a room full of doctors and I say needle decompression, I basically lobbed in a conversational grenade and I'm going to get, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to just about start a Donnie Brook on that subject. And if you look at the history of the decompression needle in the military IFAC, it's in, it's out, it's in, it's out, it's in. And it, it, a lot of it depends on who's in charge, right? Um, and it's, it, it, it's funny because you can, you can call up a PowerPoint presentation from every single year. And when it, on the, the page that shows the IFAC, sometimes you, you see the decompression needle and then you, you go to the next year and it's the decompression uh, needle with the Ghostbusters circle slashed through it because it was taken out and then you go to the next year and it's back in again and this is it's it's a bit of a circular argument that we keep having because needle decompression if done properly and i'm going to say those three words again if done properly is never going to hurt somebody if done improperly you can hurt somebody and there have been a few cases i hadn't even heard uh, of any case until i was talking to some folks that said that out at Duke, I guess a couple times a year, they're getting uh, people Im- improperly decompressed in the field where they're going way, way, way too high, and they're taking out uh, subclavian vessels 
and causing severe bleeds and, and patients are dying. Theoretically, it's possible if you had a thin enough patient and you were off enough and you put enough elbow grease behind it, you could pierce the heart. That, that's also theor theoretically a way that you could harm somebody. We're moving now towards, this is a, probably beyond the scope of this, but we're moving more and more now where we're talking about less about the second intercostal space, midclavicular line, and more about the fifth intercostal space between the uh, mid-axillary line and the anterior axillary line. But even that's a little bit problematic too. So Yeah, I was just going to say that. That was the, the other location that I had mm -hmm. known about um, where basically you're drawing an L from the nipple and like kind of a to the armpit and where that L meets is kind of that area. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's okay. It's you know you you can use the the five finger chop to measure it down. Uh, it should be roughly where the nipple line is, and 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 right, like I say, between that anterior axillary line and the mid axillary line. So just below the anterior. But again, if you angle at the right, if you angle it just right and put enough elbow grease behind it, you can actually pierce the apex. And depending on how they're laying, too, you could you could technically you could pierce the apex of the heart. Uh, in doing that. So that's not without danger either. So, you know, uh, ultimately, I, and I, I taught needle decompression in my TCCC courses with the caveat, none of you are walking out of here today with, uh, you know, the, my blessing that you're going to, that you're going to do this because I don't have a cadaver here for you to practice on. I don't have, uh, you know, I don't have the, the anatomical models for you to practice on and make sure you're proficient. And, you know, the, the biggest concern is, not what you would do the next day, but what you do, you would do six months later when, and, and I, I've seen even experienced medics put that needle in too high. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that's where we start to run into potential problems. So it's, uh, it's one of those scope of practice things, but the fact of the matter is typically, you know, if, if you're somebody working in a law enforcement capacity or you're just a civilian carrying an knife back, if you do everything else and including applying a chest seal and burping that chest seal when appropriate and you're somewhere stateside, you should be able to get that person to care in a reasonable amount of time to where you shouldn't necessarily, shouldn't hopefully have to do that intervention. And granted, I mean, if you're in the back country, if you were out deer hunting in the back country and one of you walked into the other one's lane and, and that's why you're doing this, I mean, that could be a totally different story, but. Yeah. I think you, I think you have the right uh, philosophy behind it that you know how to do it and it would be, you know, the, the absolute, you know, last resort for you, for you to do it um, to where, you know, basically you tried everything else and you, and you really thought this person was going to die if you didn't. Yeah. I mean, and it's up here in Canada where I am, uh, especially in the prairies, not unlike, uh, like where you're down in Texas, but there, there are long stretches, right? So if I'm driving from, from one town to another, or maybe I'm taking a kind of an off highway or, or something like that, or a grid road, I may, I may be an hour away from any, any other person, let alone a medical facility. So if for whatever reason I hit a deer and have a rollover and now, you know, my wife has a, uh, you know, uh, tension pneumothorax, uh, I, I, at least I want to have the option. Right. And we're sure nowadays i mean shit everybody's got a phone and everybody's got youtube you could literally mm -hmm. watch i could sit there and watch it 10 times on youtube how to do it or have it walk me through as i'm doing it if needed right so that's that's the reason why i carry one but like you're right it's it's i i was curious as to your thoughts on if officers or if other people should be carrying them um mm -hmm. that's kind of the the context behind that so 
getting into a little bit of field first aid before, uh, before we go here, I wanted to get your thoughts on performing first aid and medical care in the field on either a subject that you are either in a, involved with in an incident or you arrive and it's a medical call. I'm a big proponent of hands-only CPR. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason is because if it's not my, if it's not a friend or a family member, I'm not putting my mouth or an open orifice anywhere near their bodily fluids, mm-hmm. regardless if I have a face shield or not. So what are you, I wanted to know your thoughts on, on that. <laughs> my, my thoughts on that. So we, the shift to hands only CPR has been recent enough that uh, we're kind of just now seeing where the data is going to fall out when it comes to that. And last I heard uh, in a discussion about this topic is the, they were kind of split on whether we were going to go back or we were going to continue with, with hands only. So that being said, I would say right now the guidance the guidance is hands only. So since that's the guidance, that's in my opinion, that's all anyone is required to do as a as the first person on the scene with without the benefit of having that uh, bag valve mask with them. Um, I don't think you're obligated to do anything more than that. Um, we know that that blood, when not circulating is plenty oxygenated. So you doing good compressions at 100 beats a minute, and, and just so everybody knows, the biggest mistake that people make on compressions is they don't come up sharp enough. And what that does is you don't get adequate heart filling as you're coming back up. But if you're doing adequate compressions, sharply down, sharply up, 100 a minute, singing the BG song while you're doing it, you are gonna be circulating blood that uh, although not ideally oxygenated, will continue to perfuse in some manner. And hopefully that in combination with, you know, maybe there's an AED there and the first responders aren't fall, far behind with a bag valve mask where they can adequately ventilate and, and oxygenate that patient. Um, but like you said, you, I mean, you never know who that person is. And it's uh, a lot of times, especially you might, get there and it's somebody who's already vomited, you know, especially, you know, I've seen people that go down from a massive MI oftentimes are vomiting in the middle of that. And that, you know, that's how their chest pain is manifesting is, is as, you know, vomiting. Uh, So you get there and there's already vomit everywhere. And, you know, it's, you're not, (laughs) you're not doing them uh, if you put your mouth on that and then you're immediately vomiting, you're not doing them any favors really. So, but I, I would say again, to reiterate for, for right now, hands only is pretty much the standard. Um, I think that's what everybody is. If they're, if they're trained in it, that's the, the minimum that they're required to do. And then uh, hopefully when the, when the box with the flashing lights arrives, they can do something definitive to take, to adjust, address that airway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was, I was just really curious because I know, Right now, like Canadian Red Cross, their standard is uh, 30 and 2. And, right. that's, and that's what's being taught pretty much across the country. Um, and we also mm-hmm. have St. John's Ambulance and their programs pretty much exactly the same. But for me, I, like when, when I'm thinking about and when I have responded to, to calls, 
and we're there with an AED and we're getting on, we're, we're getting into the CPR. It's if I sometimes, most of the times it's somebody who you've had experience with in the past, whether they're (laughs) like a drug user or, you know, a frequent flyer with you guys or something like that. And you're like, I'm not, I'm not putting my mouth near this person. Like, I I understand, like, I'm going to do everything I can in my power to, to keep them alive until like a qualified medical professional gets here. But as a, as a civilian for myself now, I mean, I'm not a trained medical doctor, right? I didn't have to, I didn't uh, swear to uphold anything and protect people. So for the civilians out there and first responders as well, because they're not medical staff either. I just (laughs) want to get your thought on that situation just because it's a, it's a very difficult one and it's, it's usually a personal situation and Mm -hmm. situational dependent. Right. So you show up and it's what situation dictates. Are you going to go in there? And if it's, you know, a little old lady and you know, you're in a nursing home, whatever, but there's still a, there's a still a very real risk of, of contracting some type of communicable disease um, even though you don't see it. So I've always erred on the side of caution, but yeah. And unfortunately, most of the pocket masks that were out there didn't that people carried for a while didn't really work all that well. Some worked okay. I, I had uh, one that I carried in my car for a long time. That uh, the one that really looked like a mask worked pretty well. The one that looked like kind of thick plastic didn't really work <laughs> at all. In the end, I think it's you know depending on who you are or what your job is and where you are is kind of where your duty to act lies. So you know a civilian who just comes, you know, happens upon somebody in the mall or, or wherever it might be. That's one thing, you know, for you, that might be another thing, whatever your department says, obviously for a paramedic, uh, for, a, for a medical first responder, for a physician, that's, that's a little bit different. And I'm always going to try my damnedest to provide the absolute best that I can. But uh, yeah, it's, it's tricky because you don't, you don't know. And you know, and some, Sometimes that is a legitimate, legitimate concern. Um, I mean, thankfully, we know most things that you can get with intact skin just by putting your mouth on somebody are things you can treat pretty easily. You know, you, you, know, you shouldn't. Uh, but, you know, then again, is this, is this an alcoholic patient who also has hep C and bleeding esophageal varices and a wave of blood comes out of that mouth? You know? And, and hey, guess what? I just finished a meal and flossed, which means I have, you know, when you, every time you floss, you're cutting your gums, right? So now I've got uh, hep C blood going into my mouth with open wounds. So, yeah, man, it's tricky. <laughs> yeah, shitty situation. I just, um, yeah. um, I appreciate you, uh, you answering that one. I know I, I threw kind of a curveball at you. so <laughs> That's all right. You being a good sport about it. So we've covered a lot of, we've covered more stuff than I even thought we were going to get to today. But one thing I did want to talk about, I wanted to, to talk a little bit about your podcast, Mind of the Warrior. I wanted to hear what you got going on with that and uh, what's going on with uh, Dr. Mike Simpson. Yeah. So uh, things going on with, with me, I've, I've got them, like, as you said, I have the Mind of the Warrior podcast, which uh, is on iTunes, Spotify, whatever other platform is out there, you can just search it under, you know, whatever, whatever podcast app happens to be on your, your smart device, uh, you can search it that way. Really enjoying getting back into that. Uh, and the, the whole tenet of mind of the warriors, I talk about whatever I feel like talking about, whether that's mixed martial arts or medicine or uh, 
domestic terrorism or whatever that happens to be. So I got that going on. Um, as of today, I have the uh, Doc Simpson line of clothing and merchandise over at rangerup.com. Uh, the, good, the good folks uh, over at RangerUp have, uh, have decided to, to work with me and develop a product line, which I'm, I'm honored just to be associated with that organization. So I've got a, a line of t-shirts that just came out today, and I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, I also have, uh, it was supposed to be released already, and now it's kind of caught in limbo. I did a uh, documentary on D-Day that was going to be coming out on Amazon Prime, but now the uh, History UK is possibly going to bid on it. So the good news is it'll be on network. The bad news is it won't be seen by anyone in the U.S., uh, and I did that with my good friend, James Holland, who of course I met, uh, when we were co-investigators on hunting Hitler and, uh, he and I have a lot more adventures ahead of us because we just, we wrapped, uh, back in May, we wrapped this, uh, D-Day documentary covered the entire Normandy campaign. And, uh, we've already talked about moving forward and basically doing three part documentaries on, on other campaigns moving forward. And, uh, and I'm pretty excited about that. That's awesome. And I'm sure you made sure to mention in your documentary that uh, the Canadian forces actually advanced the furthest inland. We did. We did. Yeah. It, so uh, it, uh, it was Gold Beach, right? Juno. Juno. Yeah. Juno. Yeah. The Canadian forces kicked major ass. So uh, actually, not, not to throw my countrymen under the bus, but the initial on D-Day, on, on, the, on the Day of Days, it was actually the Canadian forces and the British forces, which mo mo met the most resistance and exceeded expectations. So uh, kudos to you as a Canadian. And uh, it was, uh, of course, we're going to get to talk uh, in, a, in a future documentary. We're going to be talking about the first special service force, which, of course, the, the joint American-Canadian unit that... Uh, fought so bravely in the Sicily campaign. So, and I'm looking forward to doing that episode as well. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm, uh, I'm super excited to see it. And well, what's going to happen is when we, uh, when your thing gets launched out in the UK, we'll find a way to uh, obviously pirate it and uh, release it. <laughs> sure. In North America. So everybody can, uh, can watch it. So that's awesome, man. Well, Hey, listen, uh, Mike, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know, I know how busy you are. And uh, I just want to say thank you, sir, for your service and thank you for uh, Mind of the Warrior and everything that you're putting out there and, and what you do um, with your medical practice. And hopefully we can do this again sometime. I really, uh, really enjoyed talking to you today. I hope so, Adam. And thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. All right, man. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Be safe. All right, that's a wrap on part two of our episode with Dr. Mike Simpson. If you want more information about Doc and the stuff that he's putting out right now, especially with Mind of the Warrior podcast, make sure to go to drmikesimpson.com. That's D-R-M-I-K-E-S-I-M-P-S-O-N.com. You can get access to the podcast and all the stuff that Doc's putting out right now. I follow him. You guys should be following him. It's awesome information, and I can't get enough of it. For the new listeners to the show or people that have just found us online, make sure to go to thebreakdown.ca. We're doing a gear bag giveaway full of equipment, and it's going to be eligible to anybody in North America. So just fill out the subscription there, and uh, we're going to enter you for the draw. If you like it, share it on other platforms so you get extra entries. Uh, really excited. That draw is going to be on September 1st. 
So get in on that while you can. And if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, make sure to do that. We really appreciate your love and support. And hopefully this information is actionable. It's useful to you in your day-to-day while you're on duty when you're out in the field. So I'm excited to bring the next episodes coming out to you guys real soon. Make sure you stay tuned and stay safe.